Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Ninkin. I'm a pediatrician and proud member of JOMA, and I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Jennifer Bain. Hi. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Dr. Bain is an assistant professor of neurology at CUIMC. What does that stand for? Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Cool. In the Division of Child Neurology. Dr. Bain completed her MD and PhD at Rutgers, the New Jersey Medical School. She continued her training in general pediatrics at University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey and Hackensack University Medical Center. She subsequently completed her child neurology residency at Columbia. She works in both the faculty clinic and at the Children's Hospital with a special interest in neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and ADHD. She is interested in genetic causes of neurodevelopmental disorders. So I cannot believe that I have not yet tackled ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. So I am so grateful that you're doing this with me today. So thank you so much for joining me. You're so welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So I'm going to just dive right in there and start with what is ADHD and, and, and a little bit of an explanation. I, have a, I am like very specific about this. I, I like when people use the correct terminology and a lot of people say, I don't have ADHD, I have ADD. Let's just start with what is the terminology? Why did they change it? What is it? Let's yeah. just go. Uh, no, that's that's a great that's a great first question. So um, ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder um, is a group of disorders. Um, they are behaviorally defined, meaning it's based on behaviors that people see on the outside, but it's neurologically based. So there's problems with the way that the brain has its networking, has the connections, the brain chemicals are actually working in the brain. And so all of those network problems and and chemical problems inside the brain lead to behaviors on the outside. We haven't entirely um, been able to tease out what causes necessarily the inattention piece versus the uh, hyperactivity uh, impulsive piece. So we put them all together um, because a lot of the treatments are very similar. Um, But in general, ADHD is a behaviorally defined disorder. It's very common. It can be as common as one in four to one in 12 school-age children. So it's pretty common. Um, And the term itself, we often say, we have ADHD, I have ADD, I have ADHD. I think that the key is to recognize that we all can have symptoms of inattention or hyperactivity or impulsivity, and we can go through some of those symptoms. It's a matter of of whether those behaviors lead to a problem. Mm -hmm. So I, I certainly have ADH a lot. (laughs) But the question is, do you get that D? Do you get that disorder? And and are you able to live your life as expected for your age? Um, 
and, and, and be a productive member of society. Um, so we can go through the different symptoms and we can talk about like when that becomes a problem um, or if that's affecting your performance. And that's when we add the D on to say it's Right. In other words, it has to affect your function in everyday life. And this came up with a patient of mine recently. The mother said, I always bring it up. I'm very concerned. And I said, is your child doing okay at home? Check. Is your child doing okay at school? Check. Is your child doing okay socially? Check. Then you don't have ADHD. Right. So, uh, I mean, I'll give you, well, let's go through a couple examples. So mm -hmm. inattention. Inattention would be not paying attention to details, mm -hmm. making careless mistakes, for example, on homework. Um, difficulty paying attention when you give them multiple step instructions. I want you to go get your backpack, go to the bathroom, grab your lunch on the way out and meet me at the front door. They do the first and they were like, what am I supposed to do next? <laughs> now, a lot of kids do those things, right? The question is, is it so often that this is a daily occurrence? Are they making so many careless mistakes that number one, they're doing poorly in school, or number two, they're becoming self-conscious and, and it's really affecting them about, I knew this, why didn't I get this right? Um, so it's really a matter of, we all do this here and there, but is it often enough that it would be a problem? Um, if, for example, do you have difficulty completing a task, right? Do they do the first page? My husband always recalls when he was a child, he would do the front part of the page, hand it in, and then he'd get 50% because he forgot to turn it over. Mm -hmm. um, very smart person, but the attention piece wasn't there. So if you're putting inattention with a smart person, something's not connecting. So that would be an example of inattention that's not that's not meeting the performance that they should be. Hyperactivity would be, <clears throat> oh, and another one that I think is really important is avoiding the things that are hard. So for example, uh, reading comprehension or, or reading, um, reading math questions, right? You can, you can bang out those, those spelling questions or you can bang out those very specific um, math questions here and there. But if it involves reading a whole passage and then going through and figuring out what they want you to actually answer, that involves a lot more mental attention to, to kind of follow through those steps. Um, so that would be another example as kids get older that you might notice they might be struggling with a little bit more, which is why the inattention piece might not be as, as commonly seen until they get higher up in the grades. Um, the hyperactivity and the impulsive piece are certainly the ones that you see more often in the little ones. Mm -hmm. These are the kids who are sitting in the office or sitting at home and climbing all over the place. Um, when I'm in my tele visits now, I can see the child climbing on mom, mm -hmm. climbing on the, the mom's running over because she's afraid they're going to hurt themselves. So hyperactivity would be the child who's always fidgeting, who can't sit still in their seat, which again, a lot of people do that. They're running around when they're supposed to be sitting. They can't stand in a line. They have to kind of go outside that line. Um, and then it gets to the point where that hyperactivity driven by a motor kind of brain um, may even lead to difficulties falling asleep or calming down or following instructions. If you do that, you're not gonna expect that child to be able to pay attention. Um, the third part of the, the diagnosis is impulsivity. And impulsivity means you kind of act before you think. And so the, the perfect example would be you <clears throat> read the first line of the instructions and the instruction said, um, you know, read all the questions to the bottom before you start. You read that, you do all the questions, you write all the answers. At the bottom, it said, don't do any of the answers. You're all done. That's right. <laughs> you just got the whole thing wrong because you didn't wait and follow the instructions. Um, 
the concern for me would be when a child is impulsive and a parent says they're so impulsive that they run across the street and they get hit by a car. Like that would be an example of, of that being a, a behavior that's certainly very harmful um, on the outside. And so if, if the inattention, the hyperactivity or the impulsivity becomes so bad that it's affecting school performance, home behavior and, and home environment or their safety or the safety of others, because your child impulsively, you know, hits the other child when they, they um, you know, maybe are playing a little game, um, you know, th those would be considered um, problematic and, and causing a, a dysfunction in their life. And that, that would give the diagnosis of ADHD. Um, and I, I guess the next question is, well, how, like, how do you make that diagnosis? Well, it's based on getting information from a lot of places. There's no test. There's no brain test. Um, you don't go and get a picture of the brain, like an MRI or an EEG, which looks at brain waves. It's really based on a good history from your doctor, which could be a pediatrician, could be a neurologist, could be a psychiatrist, a developmental doctor. There are a lot of different people that can make the diagnosis. But realistically, the, the first person who brings up concern is usually the parents or the teachers. Um, so they're the first ones who really, um, you know, bring up the concern, unless they're that hyperactive child in the doctor's office. Right. I, I want to go back a little bit because one important point as I get as a pediatrician is a parent comes in and the child is two. Oh, they're so hyperactive. Or even three or four. So I think that you have to take development into account. And I think also now that we are pushing academics earlier and earlier as a pediatrician, I'm passionate. This is really not developmentally appropriate. And I see it even more in the boys, but it could be in the girls too, where we're asking a child to sit for longer than is developmentally appropriate. There's a wide range of normal and just because a child is active, not paying attention does not mean they have ADHD. Even if it's affecting their function in school, we're not, that setting is not an appropriate setting. It could be a mismatch with the teacher. There could be many other things, particularly for the younger kids. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. My, um, my younger daughter has an 18 month old um, and she came over and she said, I think that there's a there's a family member who thinks that this child is just out of whack and has ADHD. Um, the child came for a whole weekend here, and I said he's adorable. He looks great. You know, I I see 18 months old all the time, so I'm able to see that. Yeah, there's a bell curve of personality. Right. This is not a personality issue, right? There's some kids who are a little more chill, a little more easygoing and calm. There are some that are just a little more outgoing and extroverted. The kids that we're talking about are not that. These are the children who truly are outside of that normal curve. And, and when I saw him, I spent literally the whole weekend, I said, he is okay. Um, this is a normal, normal developing child who's engaging in his environment, which we want. Um, there's no safety concerns for him or for others. Um, and he is what I would expect. I think another issue is that personalities come into effect and, and multiple children. When you have lots of children, you naturally will compare them. And so if your other children, um, you know, might have a different personalities, it's, it's not uncommon to, to compare the younger children. And I think also we have, at least personally speaking, you have a higher expectation for your younger children. You know, when you have a child who's maybe three or four or five years older, they're more mature, they're part of kind of your everyday life. And then you have this other child who's not listening and paying attention. You have to remind yourself, what were, what were my older kids doing when they were that age? Like they, that's appropriate, that's age appropriate. Um, and sometimes it is important to, it's always important to remember back to what is appropriate for that developmental age. Absolutely. How do you distinguish between what's normal and what's not then? 
Especially since I mean, I think underline the point that there is no test. People think this all the time. Right. There, I mean, I'll get an EEG. I'll get an MRI. And by the way, a lot of them do do that. The expectation is they'll do it. They do it. And then they'll come back and say, well, my neurologist said this just happened to me this week. My neurologist said my child does not have ADHD. And I'm like, how on earth did your neurologist decide that? Because they had a normal MRI and a normal EEG. Because right. normally an MRI looks at the structure of the brain. When you're looking at an MRI in the hospital, the brains look beautiful. They look great. It looks beautiful. I love looking at brains. They, they, you know, I have no problem ordering one if I want to look at one, um, but they're going to look normal. And an EEG really is looking for abnormal activity, like a seizure. And in the most, in the, in the far vast majority of cases, that's not what we're talking about here. There might be subtle EEG things, but certainly not something that would say, oh, that's ADHD. Um, you can absolutely find providers out there who have gadgets gizmos who who um say this is the adhd diagnosis it is not if you look at the american academy of pediatrics um the child neurology society and neurologists and psychiatrists the the behavior the the diagnosis is based on behaviors there's a it's a clinical criteria set forth by a group of providers um and it's been long standing this is not new um you know there's probably been decades of the diagnosis and the diagnosis being continued continually refined, which is why in the past, we used to say ADD when you were just inattentive. And now we just say, everybody has ADHD, either predominantly inattentive, predominantly hyperactive impulsive, or combined with all of that. Importantly, you won't fit perfectly in one of those little boxes. It's not uncommon for people to say, well, at this in this setting, I might have a little more impulsivity, um, whereas in math class, I might be more inattentive. And so those symptoms absolutely can change in different environments and as people grow up mm -hmm. and in different situations like a global pandemic, which is certainly shifting the dynamic at home and in school. Absolutely. Um, so your question back to um, how do we know, mm -hmm. I think... Unfortunately, it is based on kind of a larger group and, and, and how people do compared to their peers. Um, and so obviously school would be like the first and foremost location or daycare, which is which which has been a big issue in the last year where parents don't have anything to compare to. Um, I think that's why going back to your provider, um, your pediatrician sees dozens of people a day um, and, and has seen the wide range of typical development and trusting in those providers, I think is really the most important. And, and while, you know, a pediatrician might only spend a smaller portion of time compared to a, a neurologist, we really only spend about an hour with a new patient, um, which may not be representative of your child. Um, I think that's something to, to tell your provider or speak with them. This was not a representative sample of my child, or um, this was exactly how they are when they're in school or at home. Um, but the reality is your pediatrician has probably seen them multiple times. They've seen this. Um, back to the original diagnosis, this is a, this is a disorder since birth. This doesn't just happen when you turn four years old and you start in pre-K. You've always been this child. Um, this, this piece of them just continues to get a little bit more and more. And it becomes a little more noticeable as we as parents and society puts higher demands on individuals. And so I tell parents, is this who your child's been their whole life? And they say, yeah, this is kind of just who they are. Um, 
it's not that this is only happening when you're at grandma's house or when you're on vacation. Um, certainly behaviors change in different environments. Um, that's, we, we all know that that's the case, but this is kind of a, yes, this is happening. These behaviors are present in multiple areas of life with multiple situations and they're causing a problem and they've been there since they were born. Right. And I think it's the flip, it, flip side is if the parent tells you this is a sudden thing or a recent thing and your child is 14. Right. For example, it's come on later, the, the pediatrician or the specialist should be very, very suspicious that this is something else, which we do need to get to. What else could this yeah. be? Um, but I'm still stuck on the diagnosis. I know I use Vanderbilt. I know I use a questionnaire that has been standardized because as a pediatrician, I may spend 15 minutes, even if I have multiple 15 minute visits, even if I do see the child, you know, flying across the exam table and tearing apart everything, that doesn't necessarily mean the child has ADHD. That's not enough information. So I know I use the Vanderbilts, which is a questionnaire that has to be given to at least one teacher and the home because you want to see, you know, problems with functioning both at home and in school, not just in right. one, one day. So, so, you know, one so as I mentioned, you have to have these behaviors in multiple locations, uh, in multiple situations. So typically what we do to get that collateral information is we'll give the parents a report, very standard questions. Um, do they pay attention? Do they listen when they're spoken to? Do they have difficulty waiting? And it goes through those 18 symptoms. There's nine um, symptoms of, of inattention and nine symptoms of hyperactivity impulsivity. If you have enough in both of them or in one of them, that is supportive of the diagnosis. Um, and so we need a parent report to show that those symptoms are present. We need a teacher and it doesn't have to be their main teacher. You know, if you have um, an English teacher in the morning and the language person in the afternoon or a tutor that comes with them three days a week, that's just as important. I get as many teachers and, and people who are working with them one-on-one. -on -one. And very often I'll get two parents too, because parents have very different views and expectations of their children. Um, so it's not uncommon for me to say, you know what, I want each of the parents to fill one out and hand it in. Um, and then I put my own um, thought into it. And then if the child is old enough, there actually is a self-report measure. Um, so there's lots of different names of different measures. No one is better than the other. Um, the Vanderbilt is, is one that is um, approved by American Academy of Pediatrics. It's free. It's quick. I use it. Absolutely. There is a different test and they have for parents and teachers in Spanish. Great. Um, there is a different one called the Connors. That one is, it, it's nice. A psychologist typically use that one. It gives a little deeper in terms of pulling out if there's a learning problem, pulling out if there's an emotional problem. So that certainly um, can be used. The Connors has a teacher, has a parent. They also have a self-report. So sometimes they will use the Connors for the self-report, um, really just to kind of engage the, the child if they're able to do that, to say, do they, do they can they reflect on these difficulties that they have? Um, there's something called the SNAP form. I think it doesn't matter what you're using as long as you're getting information from kind of everywhere. The discrepancy comes when a parent says, oh, everything is horrible. And then at school, everything's fine. The child's okay. In a way, you're happy as a parent to say, okay, well, I'm glad my child is behaving in school. But certainly you have to figure out, is that an appropriate representation of the child or are they just not 
seeing that? Or um, is there something significantly different about the school setting and the home setting that, that perhaps um, might be triggering the kind of these behaviors? So it might not be as straightforward. But the other problem is that for a child who has a more of an inattention picture, that can be easily missed at school. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not uncommon. So the vast majority of ADHD cases are the combined cases or the predominantly hyperactive impulsive because they're the child who can't sit down for circle time in preschool. They're the child who's climbing on the wall furniture at preschool. The inattentive child, they're not getting in trouble. They're flying right under the radar. They're kind of in the corner playing with their dolls, not causing a problem. But that's just as much an issue in terms of learning and, and being part of the classroom experience as the hyperactive impulsive. But we don't get the red flags as often um, that early. That usually comes up a little bit later. And do you see a difference between boys and girls? Because my experience is that girls have more of the inattention and are missed more. Yeah, yeah that's typically most of the reports are that girls typically have more of the inattentive piece um, as opposed to boys who have more of that externalizing kind of aggressive, yeah. impulsive. Um, I do think it's important to recognize or for parents to kind of tease out aggression and impulsivity. Um, sometimes parents say, my child is so aggressive. Sometimes it's not aggression per se, it's impulsivity. Like they don't even think when the child takes the, toy and they're trying to share that they push the kid away. And so I think it's important for a lot of reasons for social stigma to say your child's not aggressive. Um, they're, they're impulsive. And, and I think framing it a little bit differently really can have a much better outcome for that child. Um, and, and I think for the family situation. Right. Now, what age do you make this diagnosis in? So the, the, the books say that you have to have these symptoms from a young age. Um, and they don't say there's a too young. Um, it used to to be seven you can't make the diagnosis before seven um, certainly they say you have to have like seven to ten before that I feel that if it is outside of the range of that neurotypical child you can make the diagnosis as early as three or four mm -hmm. now just because you make a diagnosis and we're going to get to this just right. because you make a diagnosis doesn't mean you start a medicine um, so you can make a diagnosis at three or four absolutely um, but if you really aren't sure if, if this is within the typical range then yeah it's okay to say these are the things that I'm concerned about that we're going to watch um, because we want to continue to provide support um, importantly, you can implement behavioral strategies before a diagnosis is even made as well. Um, so we're, we're going to talk about treatment, but regardless of your child, whether they have a diagnosis or even just the concerns for the diagnosis, you can always make um, lifestyle behavioral strategies kind of work for your family that likely, very likely will be helpful for you and for the child. Because it's very obvious that a child who's three or four may just be, you know, developmentally immature. It's much harder to tell the difference between what's hyperactive, what's not with a three or four-year-old than it is with a seven-year-old, number one. Number two, you know, we do have to have the concern with labeling a child incorrectly. Exactly. Right? We don't have specific um, criteria, not criteria, specific markers, biological markers for who has this and who doesn't. Right. And then, of course, you know, there's the fear of stigma. And then we have to get into medication because a lot of people believe, I don't want the diagnosis because that means medication. So I just won't get the diagnosis because I don't want my child on medication. I hear that every week. So the recommendations um, are a little, are different for preschool children and older children. The preschool recommendations are, yes, you can make a diagnosis in preschool, two to three or four years old um, or five. 
Um, but the first line treatment for preschool children is behavioral support and strategies. Um, this means providing children with um, behavioral strategies to improve the good behaviors and try to just kind of get rid of those bad ones. Examples would be um, giving the child uh, visual, visual cues. So for example, a schedule. And a lot of preschools do this naturally, right? A preschool says, the first thing we're gonna do is circle time. And then we're gonna do quiet reading time. And then we're gonna do this. So giving that child the opportunity to see what the schedule is. So a schedule is so important. And this is not only for a child with ADHD, this is anybody really. So I think a, a schedule for the day can be really, really helpful. Defining what, what is correct, what is good, and what is not, what's not acceptable. So having very um, clear rules and expectation, classroom rules, house rules, right? And those rules can't be complicated adult rules. They have to be very clear, very brief. Your child needs to know what's expected of them. Just like as an adult, you want to know what expectations you have for your job. A child needs to have expectations for, for, for their every day. Um, your child needs to have positive reinforcement. Um, we know that positive reinforcement, meaning good job with sharing. I saw that you gave that to your younger sister when they were kind of upset. I'm really proud of you. Um, you can go get a sticker now. Um, so it starts with something simple like a potty chart, like the toilet training chart, but really it's kind of a step up from that and, and, and giving yourself your child other things, right? Packing their lunch, um, giving them chores, really. Um, giving There are age-appropriate chores, even for two- and three-year-olds. So giving them clear expectations, clear schedules, positive reinforcement, and really trying to tell your child that you love them, you're not upset with them, um, we're here to help you. Help. The goal is to help your child, not to make your child feel bad, right? Um, and also just being firm in, in those things um, and making really small behavioral changes can be very helpful for that individual to reinforce all those good things. And then you start to slowly get rid of those other things. Um, and I think this is certainly true during the pandemic. We needed to create routines for our children who were at home. We needed to set expectations for them. They needed to have alone time. They also needed to have time together to, to socialize. Um, and I think providing those behavioral expectations are, are absolutely first line in, in younger children. In school-age children, the recommendations are a little more eager to doing um, medication as opposed to something like um, talk therapy or play therapy, which certainly could be helpful. But in older people, um, those behavioral strategies absolutely have to happen. So you absolutely have to talk about them and utilize them. If some if somebody comes to me and you know two days they're here and two days they're there and they don't have chores and they go to bed when they want and they wake up when they want and no we have to start setting some routines some expectations first and then we're going to talk about how medicine is helpful and how medicine does address that this is a neurological problem i think um just because you make a diagnosis does not mean you have to go to medicine um, but our job as pr practitioners and providers are to say this is a neurological disorder it is just as much as a, a disease disorder as seizures or diabetes. There is a, a chemical and network problem in the brain. And so eventually it would be inappropriate for me not to discuss medication and treatment. Um, and so we can talk about that in a little bit, but first and foremost, um, you know, just providing behavioral support, regardless of whether you have a diagnosis can be really helpful.
are there treatments other than um, medication? Because that's what I get asked a lot, especially when they first get diagnosed. A lot of parents really are hesitant. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think the, the first treatment, which is which is very helpful. And in preschool, behavioral strategies have been proven in scientific studies to work. In school age and older people, that type of structure is needed, but it's certainly the, it, it is not enough to get them there. Um, there have been a lot of studies on omega-3s or other fish oils or other medications and um, or other uh, non-traditional, non-medication um, therapies. So whether that's a diet, et cetera. There's also neurofeedback. Neurofeedback. So there is some studies that show neurofeedback might be helpful, mm -hmm. um, but certainly not strong enough to say it should take the place of medicine right now. But neurofeedback is not harmful um, and it might help a little. Absolutely. Um, therapy, talk-based therapy, play therapy might be helpful, but is not is certainly not as helpful as a medicine. Um, the other things, for example, um, diets and vitamin supplements, again, they are not harmful mm -hmm. for the most case. Um, certainly my attention is going to be better if I'm eating well and getting rid of sugar, as opposed to getting takeout meals three times a day, an entire week, right? Eating not well, eating well. So you're, you're going to do better. You're going to feel better mentally and physically if you're eating better. Certainly if there is a, a known allergy, whether that's gluten or, or a dairy allergy, and if you have that allergy, then absolutely we should treat that and you're going to feel better. Um, unfortunately, the studies are not really supportive to say that they're that, that helpful. Hmm. Um, I am, I, I, I say you, you want to try everything you possibly can to help your child, but I think you have to be realistic. And I say set expectations. So if you want to try a vitamin supplement first, I say, I, I don't think that's going to be enough, but I am supportive of that. So mm -hmm. I would treat that like a, like a medicine and say, okay, we're going to try it for two months. And in two months, that should be enough time if that was the right treatment to see an effect. And then I say, well, let's meet in a couple months and we'll see how things are going. And then we meet in two months and we decide, was it enough? Was it not enough? What happened? Um, and I think an ongoing conversation with your providers just is so, can be so helpful to gain the trust and um, really kind of go through the journey because your child is going to grow. The environment is going to change and, and we're going to be there to see how, how things progress. Um, I have many patients that I've followed for years who don't take medicine. We still provide them supports. Mm -hmm. So in school, an example would be an educational support plan, right? Mm -hmm. If your child has ADHD, they shouldn't be sitting in the back by the kids who are talking. They should be sitting in the front of the class. They should have a teacher that's coming up to them regularly saying, how are you doing on that? You need a check-in, right? They should have a teacher that's able to sit there and make sure that they write down all their assignments before they go home. Um, and, and there is an actual form called a 504 accommodation plan in school that can be provided um, for that for that person. That does require a formal diagnosis from a doctor. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, treatments and medications, you know, our, our job is to kind of talk about what's safe, what's not safe, what's been shown to be helpful, what's not really there yet. The science not there yet. Right, so that's a really important point that with that diagnosis, you can get a 504 accommodation because some parents will say, well, I went to the school district and they said they're not eligible for services. In terms of eligibility for services, you have to have enough impact on your, in your education to get what's called an individualized educational plan or IEP. But those children who need those accommodations, modifications like classroom placement, directions read and explained, you know, reminders, all of those can be gotten through a 504 plan. 
So we do have parents who want the diagnosis for their child, but don't want medication. And they do start with a 504 plan and sometimes other things like diet. Um, I also wanna mention that it's on a spectrum. So I certainly have plenty of patients that do fine without medication because they're on the milder end. Mm-hmm. But I have the flip side. I have parents who are very resistant to getting their kids on medication and they're not mild and they're not doing well. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about, the, there's a fear that a child who gets medication will somehow be more at risk of drug addiction. And I do believe that studies have shown the opposite. So I would love yeah. to. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the, the larger organizations and groups out there look at um, individuals over time. There was a large study called the MTA study where they looked at um, younger children who were given medication, um, stimulant medication for ADHD and follow them over time. And we're at about 15 years out now. So it's nice because we see kind of what happens. So most of the stuff we'll talk about with prognosis is related to that, that, um, that study. Um, and so while your child is an individual and it is a spectrum, looking at these larger studies that are done very nicely, the reality is that scientific studies are very rigid. They're very well organized as opposed to, yeah, we do want to get feedback from our friends on Facebook or social media, which absolutely is really personal and helpful. But we do need to look at like these larger big studies that are done in a very unbiased way. And so in those studies, what they did show was the the children that actually had ADHD and who weren't treated did did worse as adults with um, drug addiction. I, I guess the hypothesis is mostly that that they're self-medicating as adults. Um, we don't want to say if you don't treat your child, your child will become a drug addict. But certainly, we do know that individuals with ADHD who are not adequately treated are at risk for 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 further difficulties mentally, physically, um, emotionally, um, and certainly the risks of drug abuse or, or drug use or self-treating as adults is noted to be higher in those individuals who aren't treated um, with stimulant medications or aren't well-treated or well-maintained when they're younger. So certainly this is not not something that that um, the vast majority will just, it just gets better out of nowhere. Um, you have to do something, whether that's behavioral intervention, a 504 plan or medication. Um, in most cases, this is something that's really could continue to get worse. Right, and the typical trajectory of ADHD is more that the more of the hyperactive symptoms tend to wane over time, but the inattention and even the impulsivity, which is more under the radar, right? You yeah. know? thoroughly see it continue. So I think there may also be an impulse. I'm just speculating here that there may be an impulsivity component to the risk, you know, later risky behaviors, whether it's drug addiction or, you know, other forms of getting in trouble, you know, traffic tickets, whatever, all of those kind of things, because you're still struggling with the inattention. You're just not acting out and it's not as obvious. Exactly. So about the, from those MPA studies, um, see my child's interrupting right now. Uh, <laughs> um, so um, the MTA studies showed that half the school-age kids who were on medication needed medication when they were adolescents. Half of those adolescents needed medication into adulthood. Um, so, you know, I think in general, we do know that those hyperactive um, behaviors do get better, but the inattentive ones kind of stick around. Um, and then there's another part of this that's called executive functioning. Um, executive functioning is kind of how your brain organizes things. Um, I think of it as, you know, 
before COVID on my way to work. I drop, I pick up my coffee. I drop off my dry cleaning. I have to go that way so that I can drop off my kids on the way. And oh no, all of a sudden there's a car accident or there's flooding and they close that road. Now my brain needs to recalculate. How do I do all that and get to work on time? Right. And so your brain has to be flexible and has to be able to organize itself multiple in multiple ways. That's something you see when kids really struggled with that transition from like elementary school with one, one or two teachers to middle school to high school, um, being able to organize all that stuff that's kind of all happening in parallel, that's called executive functioning. And that stuff starts to become more and more noticeable as individuals get older um, and certainly becomes more the issue as opposed to the child um, who's running around and, and kind of um, being a little more nuisancey. <laughs> Right. And I, I also want to say that parents will say my child does pay attention. They pay attention really, really well to playing with Lego, to their Pokemon cards or whatever that they're interested in. So I think it's also important to understand that it's not the inability to pay attention per se, right? It's difficulty yeah. with other pieces, including pay attention to what's not interesting to you, right? So um, yeah, absolutely. You need to go downstairs and get a snack, sweetie, okay? You're being a very good listener. Please, thank you. You can go get a treat. Positive reinforcement that we all are absolutely utilizing during the event. Yes. Um, but absolutely, I will leave here and, and things will, will probably change. So it's hard to be a parent and to be patient all the time. Um, so what, I'm sorry, could you refresh what we were talking about? We were talking about the inability to pay attention to what's oh, uninteresting, yeah. complex, requiring multiple <laughs> steps. And that's as kids go yeah. on. Yeah. Great child, by the way. I mean, do amazing. They can go on their video game. How can my yeah, how can my child go on their video game for eight hours and pay attention to that? And yet they're not able to do their homework. Absolutely. You can absolutely have ADHD and still be able to do your preferen preferential activity for hours on end. Um, and so that is the point is that they're not able to pay attention when they need to in certain things that might be more difficult. So that is a, a good segue to what else could this be? Because one thing I'm thinking of is attention, um, autism spectrum disorders and the overlap with ADHD. Because I know it used to be you couldn't have both and they've changed that to say you can have both. I have plenty of patients who have both labels now where in the past you had one of the yeah. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, um, the ADHD diagnosis is, is based on clinical criteria. So based on, you have to have six of the nine of this and six of the nine of this from a young age. And that criteria is written in a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, mm -hmm. It's written by psychiatrists, neurologists, psychologists. Um, and that, that book also has the, the diagnosis of autism and what autism um, how you get the diagnosis of autism. And so in the older version, um, it used to be that you only um, could have autism or intellectual disability or ADHD. You couldn't have both, which is hilarious because as any provider could ever say, they usually have all of it. It's typically a syndrome. Well, so, so now in the newer version, the current version, which is DSM-5, the fifth edition, um, they came to the realization that yes, you can have autism and ADHD and the rates can be high, um, you know, up to 50% um, can have ADHD symptoms in autism. So you absolutely can have both. 
um, most of my parent patients um, prior to um, the pandemic, we had we didn't have a very nice um, medical record, electronic medical record. So typically parents would come to me and I'd have a circle here and a circle here and a circle here. You have, this is the main issue, but then these are other things that are certainly there. Your child won't fit in a box. Like they're not gonna fit in one specific label, okay? We have to identify how I like to think about it is we have our peaks and our valleys, right? So your child is a great personality. They're really good at Legos. They're such a kind person, but they got some ADHD. There's a little bit of anxiety there. There's a little bit of this. And so our goal is to identify where are those, where are those valleys? And then how do we try to help fill them in um, so that, that your child can be confident and do well? Um, and so it absolutely can be that you can have autism and ADHD. A lot of common, what we call comorbidities with ADHD are autism, learning disorders, which I do want to comment on, anxiety. Anxiety is so hard. Anxiety and mood. Um, children who are anxious will naturally be inattentive. And if you're inattentive, then you're anxious that you're not able to do well. And so that can unfortunately be a, a pretty constant loop. Um, and so addressing both of those sleep problems, it's not uncommon for kids who have ADHD to really struggle with falling asleep and staying asleep, turning off that brain when it's really just driven by that motor can be really hard. And that really affects the child and the whole family. Um, and then I, I think certainly there are other things that can come along with ADHD, but those are the big ones. The learning disorder one is very important. Um, because this means that a child, for, for example, might have a, a totally average IQ, their cognition is okay, but for whatever reason, they have something called, we used to call it dyslexia or dysgraphia, so specific learning disorder in a specific subject, whether that's reading or writing. And so we can't just say everything is from ADHD. Sometimes there are learning disorders, which we really do need to tease out, and that might require an individualized education plan or special teaching. And so unfortunately, sometimes we have to watch and see how things are, are progressing. And, and sometimes when you go on a medicine and you kind of improve that attention, those learning problems become a little more noticeable. And, and we become a little more confident in saying, I really do think your child is struggling with that specific area. It's not that they were just not paying attention to it. Um, they, um, they, it, it might be more than that. So really looking as for other things, I think is an important Right. I, I want to make the point that a lot of parents expect the school to pick these things up and the kind of testing the schools do is pretty superficial. Yeah. Um, it's not as extensive as a neuropsychologist would do. And so, you know, you might choose the problem with neuropsychological testing is it tends not to be covered. It depends on your insurance. It could be very expensive. Um, but there is the option for, you know, going to your school district and saying, I want an independent assessment. I want another assessment. You can do that and you can get more information. So you may find out that your child has a very specific learning disability that requires specific treatment. So just in terms of advocacy. The first, yeah, the first step is always, um, you know, to go to a provider and talk about it in parallel to going to the school to get information from them. Things might be going worse than you expected or things might be going better, in which case you have every right to request the school to do some degree of investigation. That could be the, te the, the teacher or the counselors speaking about how the child's doing. They might not do a full evaluation, but at least a superficial one to see how are they doing. Often, um, the, the, the reality is that the school district, um, their 
their job is to provide ac academic support. And so their job is to say, how is this affecting their academics? Obviously, we know that school does much more than just academics, um, but um, their first job really is to say, how is this affecting their academics in school? Um, so they might do just a very superficial IQ test and academic testing just to see if they're kind of on the radar. Um, that might not be enough. They might need more, more testing. On the flip side, you don't necessarily have to go out and pay for a full evaluation. Sometimes that's not necessarily the case. Um, the reality is that if one in five or one in 10 kids have ADHD, I can guarantee that um, the, the vast majority do not have a full neuropsychological evaluation and they don't need it. Um, general pediatricians and, and other providers can diagnose this and can manage this. And so I think you really have to, you know, trust in the system, but certainly reassessing over time is really important. If you get the diagnosis and the school denies you, it's not inappropriate a year later to say, we're addressing that. It's not getting better. I think we need to go back. Um, and that's okay. And, and as a parent, your job is to advocate for your child. Absolutely. Now, what else could this be? Because we talked about there being comorbidities, meaning ADHD doesn't usually exist alone. It more commonly does have learning disabilities, anxiety, and so on and so forth. But could it be something that's not ADHD at all? Yeah. So your, your comment earlier about the 14-year-old who out of nowhere, there, mm. there are cases where there are other disorders, other diseases out there that can mimic ADHD. Um, again, this is a brain disorder. So anything happening in the brain can affect these behaviors on an outside. If a child comes and whether they're at school age or if they're older and they don't have a history and the parents swear to me and I, I get collateral information from the pediatrician that this child was typical, 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 typical. And then all of a sudden they stop talking. They have language regression. Now they're walking funny. Now they don't seem to be seeing very well. We need to really make sure we're not missing a, a hearing problem, a vision problem. Yes, we in that situation, they need a good neurological evaluation. They might need an MRI of the brain to make sure there's nothing in the brain that's changing things that were not there before. Um, and they very well might need um, an EEG to make sure there's no evidence of abnormal brain activity. Um, there are sometimes seizures that you don't see on the outside um, that can affect the brain, um, for example, when you're sleeping and, and certainly can mimic um, ADHD. And so those certainly would be um, concerning things that, that would warrant more investigation. Absolutely. And also sleep apnea, right? I mean, that's something I ask about, do they snore? particularly for the younger Right. So um, headaches, we didn't talk about headaches, but headaches certainly can happen. So if somebody comes to me and they say, you know, they wake up in the morning and they have a headache every morning and they're snoring and, and maybe they're a little, maybe they're overweight, maybe they're not overweight. Um, certainly that can affect their breathing and their, their sleeping. And that, that certainly is something that we could help and, and perhaps could in, improve. If you're not sleeping well, then you're, you're not able to um, have a, a, a good restful sleep um, and reset your brain for the next day. Right, and a very important um, mimic is anxiety or emotional problems, stress, especially now that we have the pandemic. I see so many stressed children who are, you know, coming in, they can't pay attention. So, you know, getting a really good history is so- Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and know. so again, it's, you know, it's that, is it overlapping or is it the cause? Is it the primary cause or just related? Um, getting a good history of timeline can be so important. Um, 
we don't know what COVID's doing in terms of um, brain fog and memory. We certainly are in the midst of kind of investigating it and seeing it. Unfortunately, COVID certainly has its indirect effects of kids being outside of school, of anxiety being high. So there's certainly psychological stressors. Um, and then we don't even know about the virus itself and how that's affecting the brain. Um, so I, I don't think we can comment too much on that, but certainly um, mood disorders. When I have when I have somebody who has who comes to me and, and they have an ADHD diagnosis and we'll go through a year or two years of medication, 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 and we're just not getting anywhere um, after trying many different medicines, it's it's not uncommon to say, I, I think we're going the wrong route here. And, and this perhaps ADHD is a piece of this, but the anxiety or the depression really is what's surmounting the issue. And, and then we have to change our plan um, because it's, it's not um, addressing all of the needs of the child. Right. And we've, we've talked a little bit about who should be treating ADHD. And you, you keep mentioning that, you know, a pediatrician, you know, a regular healthcare professional, you know, general practitioner can do this. I, I happen to find it difficult because we tend to have very short visits. And we talked about how complex this yeah. could how many things it could be. So I, 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 I can't say it should never be the pediatrician. So many pediatricians do. I would just say to a parent listening to this, if you're going to your pediatrician and you know, they started your child on medication and it's, it's not working, right? Rather than just keep changing the medication and keep changing the dose, it's very reasonable to go to someone. And it's also reasonable to say you, you want to go to someone to begin with, although you don't have to have it diagnosed by a specialist. You don't, I mean, so many parents come in my, my school district said they have to go to a neurologist. <laughs> or you have to go to a neuropsychologist. No, they don't. Um, you, you know, I think the reality is that um, a provider has their, spec their, their, their expertise and their specialty. There's some pediatricians who feel very confident and, and have that skill set. And that's great. There are some neurologists who don't do this. So, so it, it really depends on that provider. And I think for a, it's okay for a parent to say, um, I want to come somebody to treat my ADHD. And, you know, if you called our office, our neurology office, we have 15 neurologists. Um, and if you say I'm concerned about ADHD, there's, you know, five of us that that's what we do. That that's our area. The other five, not that they don't, but that, that wouldn't, they don't call themselves like ADHD experts. And so you need to need to go to a place and say, you know, this is what I'm concerned about and just make sure that that person is, is the right fit for what you need. Right. You know what? I'm going to stop here only because we could talk all day and we could, we're just scratching the surface of this topic. What we really didn't talk about is medication, you know, the nitty gritty of medication. And I really think that's an entirely separate podcast. Yeah. So I'm hoping you'll do another one with me. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. You want to do that? Sure. But I want to thank I think that would be great. you. But you go back to your family. But thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> sure, with sure. They're all over. Thank yeah, you. let's do another one and we can talk all about medicine. I think that's a whole nother thing in itself. Part two, part two. All right. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Have a great day. Bye. Hi, welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association podcast. My name is Elisa Minkin. I am a pediatrician and a proud JOMA member. And I'm really excited to be here again with Dr. Jennifer Bain. Hi. Hello. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for being patient enough to do this part two. Now, everybody should understand, I'm going to introduce you again, but please, if you are listening to this and you didn't hear part one, turn this off and go back and listen to part one, because we are not going to be repeating a lot of the things we said in part one that are important to understand before we go into medication. 
So I just want to give you an intro again. Dr. Bain is an assistant professor of neurology at Columbia University Medical Center. Perfect. Thank you. In the Division of Child Neurology, she completed her MD and PhD at Rutgers. She continued her training in general pediatrics at University Hospital of Newark and Hackensack University Medical Center. She subsequently completed her child neurology residency at Columbia. She works both in the faculty clinic and at the Children's Hospital with special interest in neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and ADHD. And she's interested in genetic causes of neurodevelopmental disorders. So we are going straight into part two. We talked and talked and we didn't even have time to get to medication. I just want to start by saying, I don't want people to think we're just saying, okay, ADHD equals medication. Go back and listen to that talk. But I want to start with asking you, do you think that we're over-medicating or under-medicating? I think the goal of treatment is to number one, make the right diagnosis, an appropriate diagnosis with someone that the parents trust as getting a good understanding of who their child is. And then my rule of thumb is to treat the child, not the parents, not the teachers, right? The goal is to help the child. And if we're doing this in their best interest, that to me should be the center of, of focus for the conversation. I agree. And it should be ongoing dynamic conversation an ongoing diagnosis question of the diagnosis and the treatment, um, recognizing that the child will grow, situations will change. Clearly this year is very different than other years, mm -hmm. but always thinking about the child first and, and really trying to get a good idea of what the whole environment's like. Right. And it's very interesting. I just had another um, family come in where the children have a diagnosis of ADHD, but because they are remote schooled, they're doing fabulously. Now I've seen the opposite where they do terribly. Yeah. And the difference is what is the home environment like? Right. And it's hard, it's hard to get a good understanding as the clinician to say, mm -hmm. where's your child struggling? I tell parents, my goal is not to medicate your child. My goal is to understand how can I help your child? I am not pro-med, I'm pro-kid. Whatever a right. child needs to do to thrive, whether that's behavioral support, medication, a combination of both really should be the focus of, of treatment. Um, I struggle often when we get conflicting reports from home and school and different, mm -hmm. um, different locations. If it's all aligned and we're getting the same feedback, that's really the best situation. And, and we're all on the same page to treating the child and, and kind of minimizing the side effects and really helping with the potential benefits. Right. And another thing to keep in mind is there is no magic pill. It's not like strep where you give them an antibiotic and it goes away. I think the expectations have to be clear from the outset that it's not a magic pill, you know? Right. So that's number one. Number two, when I said the environment matters, so I found when parents are telling me their children are homeschooled that the ones that are doing worse are the ones where the parents aren't able to provide the structure the school did. And the opposite can be true with children who struggle in a larger environment, who struggled with, you know, not adequate structure for them. When the parents are one-on-one, -on -one, they're doing much better. And the, what I told that particular family is that's great that they're doing great now, but we can't expect a one-on-one -on -one our entire life. So when parents say, I just get a one-on-one for my child, they'll be fine. Or if the teacher could just pay more attention to them, that would be fine. We have to have reasonable expectations of the environment as well. 
Right. And it, and it has to be a combination of, of behavioral supports at home and in school, realistic expectations for the child and the family and the teachers. Um, medication is there to help. It is not going to fix the problem. Um, it can help, um, but it will not cure everything and make everything else go away. You still need to have all these behavioral supports put in place. Right. And also I meant to say overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. Interesting. I said overmedicated or undermedicated. And those are two different things. When we talk about over-medicating or under-medicating, I'm talking about once they have a confirmed diagnosis of ADHD, are we doing too much medication? Are we medicating them and we don't need to? And you answered that question, but there was a different question I actually had in mind is are we over-diagnosing or under-diagnosing ADHD? And that's important because when you're treating something, you have to be treating the right thing. So prior to the pandemic, even a, a few years ago, um, there have been a lot of reports out there that the number of individuals with ADHD and other disorders in that spectrum, so autism, tic disorder, obsessive compulsive, anxiety, and ADHD are all on the rise. I don't think we understand as a scientific community or medical community, whether that is something physiologic, something regarding our environment and our society right now, but they're all on the rise in terms of diagnoses. Um, I think I, we are more aware of it and we are certainly more open to accepting it as opposed to saying my child is not listening and paying attention because they're an ill-mannered child. Mm. Um, I think we are recognizing that that's not always the case. And, and I think we are providing more support to children who, who are struggling and maybe previously wouldn't have gotten that diagnosis. Um, I think it's hard to say whether we're overdiagnosing it or just being more aware that this is something that is happening often. In the pandemic, it's all on the rise. Everything is on the rise. And our goal is just, in my opinion, to keep kids happy, healthy, safe, and no regression. That's really my goal right now. Um, but we do know that a lot is being increased in terms of overall diagnoses. Um, and we are being more aware of it and more cognizant that these are issues that we need to support our society and our kids. Absolutely. And when you mentioned environment, I mean, there are people who feel that it's not a problem that needs medication. Um, they are more into alternative treatments of it. And I don't want to be dismissive and you are not. And we talked about it a little bit in our previous talk. I just don't want people to think that we are dismissing it by not talking about it extensively. I think it's really a separate talk. Um, really, if you want to say a little bit about alternative treatments. What I'll say is that there, um, there are some larger studies looking at um, ADHD management in preschool kids. In mm -hmm. preschool kids, so under five, the recommendation is for behavioral treatment, behavioral therapy, not really play therapy, but really giving them behavioral strategies first. Um, that is the recommendation. In older children, there are larger studies that show that um, that alone is not enough and that medicine is helpful. What I will say is that I think a child needs good sleep. They need to have good, healthy eating habits. So if, if somebody came up to me and they told me they have fast food every day for every meal for a week, I would guarantee that their sleep's gonna be poor and their behavior's not gonna be too great um, and they're not gonna feel well. And so if, and, and similarly, if I don't sleep well one night, the next day, it's not really a good day for me. So yes, we need to optimize our sleep. We need to optimize our daily eating. Are there specific nutrients or supplements out there? We haven't really found one as a smoking gun to be like, that's gonna be the one that's gonna fix it all. 
but yes, we do want to encourage healthy eating. Um, it's really hard to do a controlled study or research study saying you, all of you are going to have this specific diet and all of you are going to have that specific diet because they kind of know what they're eating. Um, there are reports that some of those can be helpful. There aren't, there just isn't a lot of scientific support to say like, that's going to fix this just as good as, as medication, but that doesn't mean you can't try that. So I think you absolutely want to encourage good, healthy eating. We absolutely don't want to be missing any essential vitamins and nutrients. There are some um, smaller studies and suggestions out there that omega threes. Um, so the fish oils have been helpful for attention. To me, that's great. Go try it. You can buy it over the counter. Um, for a while, it was actually prescription grade, but I don't think it did so well. And people um, didn't really see huge improvements alone. But with some medication, it was helpful. I think you have to treat even these supplements and vitamins as an intervention. Mm -hmm. And so what I tell parents are, if you're going to make major medication or dietary changes or vitamin changes, consider that a treatment. So say, okay, for one month, we're going to do all those vitamins and that, or that specific diet. Let's see how it goes. If that is helpful, then you should absolutely continue that. If it's not helpful, then I think it's time to think about something else. So we have to be realistic in our expectations. Right. In terms of being realistic, it also matters what's going on. So it's the functional level we're dealing with because it's a spectrum, right? So there'll be some kids who, if you optimize their sleep and their diet and, that and, might be enough. and their structure and their structure, 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 um, that may be enough. And I see this all the time. So getting a diagnosis does not mean you have to go on medication. And I really strongly urge parents to get the correct diagnosis for their child. And again, we talked about in the other one that there's other things that can be confused with because we don't have a specific biomarker for this disorder. Someone who has anxiety, someone who has emotional, we can go on and on. It's all discussed in the other one. I don't want to repeat it. Um, you have to make sure the diagnosis is, is correct. And there's other things that can be intertwined is what we call comorbidity. So there's so many different factors, but you're right. Like doing one thing at a time is really smart, but it depends. Like if you have a child who is getting, you know, kicked out of school, you don't have time for a two month trial of omega three and the data are not so, so strong. Right. Or if you're worried that for safety, right. If somebody comes to me and says, my child's not paying attention at all and they'll jump out in the street, they're going to get hit by a car. Then that's a safety issue. And right. we need to address that. Um, yes, you need to make the diagnosis to make the behavioral supports. Yes, the diagnosis will get you support in school with a 504 accommodation that we talked about last time. But absolutely no, you do not need to necessarily jump to medication for all cases of ADHD. And sometimes these behavioral strategies are enough to support people. Um, but if it is more severe, the medication really likely will be helpful. Um, and, and, and addressing that first and foremost is really is, is part of my medical um, my medical recommendation, because that's what I'm here to offer you is to say, how can I help? Right. And another thing that I literally heard yet again today, I mean, I worked for half a day and I have so much to talk about just from a half day. It's so common. It's so common. Um, the parent who says, I don't want anyone to know. So I don't want the school to evaluate. I don't want a diagnosis. I don't want them stigmatized. My job. At, so one thing I will tell parents is that there, there are there are laws and patient confidentiality. So I, I am your child's doctor. 
I'm not even your doctor, even though I might give you recommendations. I'm here for your child. My job is not to report back to school. My job is to um, provide my recommendations to you on behalf of your child. And so if you go to the doctor, just because you see them does not mean that number one, that's going to be flashed all over the place. We don't have, the doctor doesn't have any right to even release any of that information, even to other family members, um, especially not the school. If I make a recommendation or a diagnosis, a letter does not mean um, if I write a diagnosis letter, I don't provide that to the school. I provide that to you. You can do what you want with that. Um, but I do think it's helpful. And I encourage families to speak with the school because the goal is they should be on your child's team yeah. too. And so the point is that we're all working together to help your child. Um, but but I, I think that the stigma, the stigma associated with ADHD is certainly uh, much different than maybe it was 20, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, we are very aware of it as a problem and, and we want to help people. Um, and it's not due to bad parenting. It's not due to having a soda during pregnancy. It's not due to any of that. Um, and, and so we need to recognize that it is, it's, an, it's a neurological disorder um, and that there is an underpinning physiologically wrong here and we need to support somebody in that diagnosis. Right. And my answer was a lot shorter. <laughs> my answer was, everybody will know when your child doesn't function. So by not billing the cat, by not labeling it, by not getting help, and we're talking about talking to the school. So yes, when you go to the doctor to get a diagnosis, you don't have to share it. But it's so important, by the way, as a pediatrician, I get very frustrated because I don't get things shared with me. And I need to know, as your child's pediatrician, I'm here to help. And yet right. it is confidential, there's a whole other layers of confidentiality for mental health and, and developmental behavioral health that I have to, you know, work harder just to get that connection. And I do it to help advocate. So when a child goes to school and that child is not doing academically well and not doing socially well, right, and not doing behaviorally well, and you haven't labeled the child, everyone can see. Right. That was my answer. So that's a good segue into who needs medication and how would you even start? What kinds of medications are there? That's a lot of questions. <laughs> no. So I think the first question is we all have to be on the same team. We all have to say, yes, we agree that this is a diagnosis. Yes, we agree that um, we have put forth the behavioral supports that we need. If somebody comes to me, they don't have a bedtime routine. They're switching homes every day. They don't have regular schedule. They don't use positive behavior charts. They haven't tried any of these techniques or any of these strategies that I usually recommend then we have to start with that. So we typically wanna start with good behavioral supports. When that is not enough, that's when we have to say medicine can be helpful. You should discuss medicine from the very beginning. Whether or not you're starting it at that point or another is a different story, but that is part of our, our medical recommendation. So we need to be aware of that. Um, I have patients that I've talked about it at the beginning and sometimes they say send the prescription by the end of the meeting. Sometimes they literally are getting in the car and they call me back and say, okay, now we're ready or they call me the next day, or they call me two months later and they're like, it's okay. The conversation will continue to evolve. So it's okay to wait until we're all ready. Um, I think it's very important that that both parents or whoever is important in that care, caretaker role um, needs to be on the same page about it. I think that's the most important thing. So um, when you feel like the behavioral supports are in place, and everybody says, yes, this is an issue and it is not getting better with where, what we are providing right now, whether that's, medic, whether that's um, uh, diet, therapy, 504 accommodation, when that's not enough, um, that's when we have to start thinking about can medicine be helpful? And that's when we talk about the options. 
Um, but again, I think having everybody's buy-in is really important. Older kids, you might even want their buy-in. Um, I find that very helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. The thing I would add though, is that in many families I see, they're under so much stress from other things that may not be related to the child or from the child or both the interaction that they're not really able to put those behavioral methods into play and they will often choose to go on the medication. There should be no shame in that you're just trying to help your child function better. What I will say is that sometimes it is needed to just kind of help get those behavioral things in place. And so mm-hmm. that's okay. As right. long as you've tried mm-hmm. and you, you, you've you established that, yes, you've tried these things, they haven't worked. Just because I said you tried them doesn't mean that they, they necessarily worked, right? Um, for this reason and that. What I will tell you is that all parents need to recognize if you are doing this in the best interest of your child, not you, not your caregiver, you, your child, then you are making the correct decision. Do not feel guilty. Do not feel bad. You are not doing this to harm your child and you are not doing this in a selfish manner. You're doing it in their best interest. And I think the guilt is a big part of this Mm -hmm. Um, and really swallowing that pill as a parent to say, I'm doing this for my child. If your child had diabetes, if your child had seizures, I doubt you would be as hesitant to start a medication to help them. And so it really should be considered very similarly. Right. I often call it glasses for the brain. Yeah. Just to make it really simple. Yeah. And so it, it would be it would be unfair to say, you know what? You're you have diabetes and so you should be eating better. But I know you're not eating like as well as you could be but I'm not going to give you the insulin. Um, so you're just going to have to figure it out on your own. That's not really fair. Like your body's not able to make the, the, what it needs to clear up. You're not able to squint um, as best as you can. It's not going to fix itself. You need the glasses, you need the insulin. Um, and, and it's okay. I give, I feel like I give permission a lot and I tell parents it's okay. If you're doing it in their best interest, if you're doing it in their best interest, you're making the right decision. What age do you start medication? It depends on who the child is. Sometimes I start on I, I start on children who are three or four years old. If wow. if they really are struggling with that, and if those behaviors really are intrusive or harmful or dangerous, um, it is okay in those situations to start at three or four or five years old. Um, people used to get hung up on the number or the age of seven um, or the age of ten, just based on you can't make the diagnosis before seven. Well, that's not really true. That was a number that we arbitrarily said you have to have these symptoms by that age, um, but there's no specific age. Um, medications are are approved by the FDA um, at five or six years of age and up, but that doesn't mean you can't use um, use them a little bit earlier than that. Um, it's really when you feel like the child would benefit from medicine. So you can use it when you feel like it's ready. Um, it's not. It's never really too early and it's never really too late to say medicine could be helpful. Right, and when you're talking about young children, you're talking about children who are so severe. You're not mm-hmm. talking about children who are mild cases that they are just not functioning despite all the behavioral supports. And I see, by the way, I have specialists who won't do it. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, you have to feel comfortable. Again, if if I have a child who is um, jumping out in the middle of the street, who's banging their head on the ground, that's a, that's that I, I worry about their safety, about their life. Um, and that, in that case, yes, you should absolutely. Um, if the child is biting because they're so impulsive and we cannot back off on that, then it, it might be helpful. Um, but yeah, it shouldn't be that we're just throwing out the medications. We really need to understand the child and how these behaviors are influenced by, the, by their environment and their different settings. Right. So what do you start with? Do you have a specific medication you start with? What are the different kinds of medications? Right. 
so there's two groups of general medication, stimulants and non-stimulants. The stimulants, parents say, my child is already hyperactive. I don't want them to be more hyperactive. Um, we call it a stimulant. It stimulates the front part of the brain to focus and slow down. And so it, it stimulates the part of the brain that we want. It won't rev them up. Stimulants are um, also grouped into the, meth the methylphenidates, which is Ritalin, and the amphetamines, which is Adderall. And underneath each of those two groups, there's a couple different choices. There's long acting, there's short acting, there's brand name, there's generic name, um, there's patches, there's liquid, there's tablets, there's capsules, there's lots of choices, okay? Um, these are the type of medications as a whole where they're in your system that day and they're out of your system that day. They only work for the day that they're in your system. Okay, and that's very different than the non-stimulants that we'll talk about in a minute. In general, these are both very effective medications. They're both very safe medications and they both work for ADHD in children. They're both approved for that. Um, in general, we typically start with the methylphenidates. I personally do because I do find um, the larger studies show slightly fewer symptoms and, and you know worrisome things. So typically I start with the methylphenidates, which is Concerta, Ritalin, Focalin, those types of medications. Um, the goal is always to start the lowest possible dose you can and slowly go up. The nice thing about stimulants is you'll know if you're at the right dose that day. So within a couple of days, if you take Ritalin three days in a row and you're like, wow, that was a really good day. Give it another day. You're like, that was another really good day. That was another really good day. Four or five days down the line, you're like, that was a really good week. It's probably the medicine that's helping. If you're not sure, then what we do is we actually go up a little bit and say, okay, now do we notice a difference? And so it's really a matter of at that beginning, it can take a couple months to find the right dose and the right exact medicine kind of timing. Um, but in general, you stimulants work about 50 to even 75% of the time, depending on, on the individual. If you have symptoms with one, if you have side effects with one, so the common side effects that we hear about are appetite restriction, so you're just not hungry, they might not eat as much during the day, but when it comes out of the system in the evening, they might be ravenous and eating things. Um, as long as it's not causing weight gain, um, I, I usually just supplement with kind of extra fatty healthy fat, fatty foods. Um, but in general, if they're not losing weight, I don't usually worry too much about that. Um, sometimes rarely headache, um, a little bit of tummy ache food, usually with the medicine in the morning can help with that. Um, there are some bad, uh, worrisome things like insomnia, if they have difficulty falling asleep, um, obviously scary things would be agitation or psychosis, which are super rare, but can happen. Um, and if any of those are present, then we usually will say, let's go over to that other group, the amphetamines, and see whether or not you respond a little differently to that. Do you see anxiety with these medications increase? You can, and it's frustrating because ADHD, as we talked about earlier, are commonly seen with anxiety. So it's not uncommon to see anxiety and ADHD together. And so if you actually see worsening anxiety on the medicine, it can happen, um, and it actually can be from the medicine. So we do have to be mindful of that. Right, and also could be that the child has anxiety, not ADHD. Right. Right. And that's why you're seeing it worse, but you could have both. Absolutely. The other type of medication, these are your non-stimulant medication, and there's a few of them in that category. Um, those work differently in that it does, you have to take these medicines every day and they build up in the system. And only at about two, three, four weeks, do you start seeing the change. And so you actually have to give that a couple of weeks before you, you see any difference at all. 
as opposed to those stimulants where you'll kind of see that change that, that day if that's the right amount. Now, there are three main ones that we typically talk about as non-stimulants. Two of them are called guanfacine and clonidine. Um, and these are blood pressure medicines called alpha agonists. Um, they work okay for, for blood pressure, but we actually find that they work very well for ADHD. Um, they can be very helpful as well because they can kind of have a calming effect. They're not anxiety medicines, but they do kind of have that anxiolytic effect. Um, clonidine can be particularly, um, it can cause sleepiness more than guanfacine. And so if I have children who struggle with anxiety or maybe struggle with falling asleep, clonidine can be a nice option to help with um, both of those symptoms. The third medicine is, is called Stratera or Atomoxetine. That's actually, that is an anxiety medicine. It doesn't work so great for anxiety, but it does work pretty well for ADHD. And similarly, you have to give that a couple weeks before you start seeing the effects on ADHD from that medication. And isn't, aren't the, the um, clonidine and the guanfacine available in short acting, in which case you wouldn't have to clean? Yeah. So, um, both the clonidine and guanfacine, as well as the stimulants, they all come in long acting and short acting formulations. Those are based on a group of people and what we found in the laboratory values. So it is gives us a general guide, but you have to remember that every child's an individual and they all will respond differently. Um, their brains are all unique. And so sometimes long acting medication might last the whole day for some children and only half a day for the other. Um, so really working closely with your provider to um, titrate those medications can be kind of tricky in those first few months. Um, but there are a lot of options out there because they are available in different um, formulations. How long would the guanfacine and clonidine short acting last? Um, it could last for some kids um, about three, four, six hours. Um, so guanfacine, sometimes children do take it three times a day, but usually it's twice a day. Um, and clonidine, similarly, it's, it's about twice a day is when we usually give it. Mm -hmm. And how would you pick one versus the other? I'm going to have to say before I forget that I know a lot of parents don't want the stimulants because they say, aha, that is a controlled substance. That is a drug my child might get addicted to. Right. So what I would say is that we don't have any evidence that the restricted, just because it's restricted, that it, that it is addictive to the brain. Um, there, it does not have the addiction properties like you would think of other types of um, drugs and other controlled substances we do restrict it. It is legally restricted, but that is because we do want, we don't want it to get into the wrong hands for people who, um, who do take this medication. Um, yes, it's quite annoying to have to go in and get a prescription refill every month. Um, but it works really well. And, and, and that's why it's helpful. Um, the longer term studies do show some concern for, um, those who don't take the stimulants might have difficulty with um, drug and alcohol abuse as adults. Um, I think there's a lot of data out there, but it's still a little confusing. So we're not at a point where we're going to say, if you don't take your medication, you're going to turn into a drug addict. Um, it is about balance. Um, and we do have to, to recognize that if we, if you help your child now, um, more likely this will be helpful for the future. Mm -hmm. um, parents often will say, what's the likelihood that they're going to be on medicine for their whole life? And I say, well, the, the results show, the studies show that half of the kids who are little need stimulants into adolescence. Half of those children will need it into adulthood. I can't predict which half your child's going to be on. But yes, there is a very likely chance that your child could outgrow the need to have this medication. And that's why the behavioral strategies are really helpful for the long run. Mm -hmm. So what... Do you see when they go on this medication? When you say effects, what are we looking at? 
Um, so typically we want, uh, that's a great question. We want to identify with the parents, what are we looking for? Because these are behaviors that we see on the outside. So if, for example, we're worried about inattention and it takes your child an hour and 15 reminders to do one sheet of paper for homework, I would expect maybe we, we cut that down to 30 minutes and you only had to remind them twice to go back to it, right? So we're seeing improvements in their behavioral need to be, re, uh, to be refocused. Or um, they're able to sit at the dinner table for 15 minutes as opposed to the one minute that they were before. Um, or that um, they're able to, to sit obviously in, in, in pandemic time right now, they're able to sit through a 20 minute class without having to jump out of the seat and walk around the house 15 times. So we do have to identify what behaviors we're looking to improve. Um, and that, that comes from the parents and from the school as well. And how do you measure it? Is there any kind of objective way? Yeah, I'm unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, uh, tricky question you. Um, so we do use um, different rating tools that can be helpful. Um, they are, we use the same ones for the diagnosis. Um, so there's tests called the Vanderbilt questionnaire, the Connors questionnaire. I don't care what you use um, as long as it's giving us valid data. And so we asked the parents and we asked the school, how are they doing? And so it used to be on a, it's a one, two, three, or four. So one would be, no, we don't really see them getting out of their chair too much. Or four is they're out of their chair all the time. So hopefully what we start seeing is that that number starts getting a little bit lower. And as we start seeing those behaviors start to improve, then we start feeling more confident that the medication is working and that's the right choice. Right. And what percent of the time did you say it worked in the stimulants versus the non-stimulants? Because why don't you just choose a non-stimulant if you don't want to use a stimulant, just controlled substance and we don't have great, you know. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, so stimulants work seven at least 50% of the time, more like 70 to 80% of the time. So right. stimulants work really well a lot and quickly. And so you'll know um, the, the non-stimulants um, are my third line choice. First and second choice, stimulants, unless there's a reason otherwise to not be on it. Um, and there aren't too many reasons why you can't go on that medication. Um, really, in, in most cases, stimulants are the, are, are, you, are the recommended first line. Wait, so how does that compare to the non-stimulants then? Because you're saying it's first line, it must be more effective, right? It is more effective. Um, the studies are definitely that stimulants are much more effective than the non-stimulants. Um, and so that's why we typically recommend them afterwards. Um, and unfortunately, what we try to do is a lot of parents say, I, you know, I want the least amount of medication. I say, well, that's the goal. My goal is the least amount of medication with the most effectiveness. Sometimes we aim for one medication. Sometimes that, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes we do need to use two. Um, I would tell parents, don't be worried about that. That's okay. They work very differently. And so they might be very helpful. And so I think the goal is always to use one medicine and, and go as, as high as we possibly can. And if we realize we're kind of hitting some, some roadblocks there, some side effects, then it might be helpful to add a little bit of another one. The combination together sometimes can be very helpful. Right, because one downside to the stimulants is when it wears off, that child may have some kind of right rebound, difficulty right. sleeping. And, right. and these children often have difficulty sleeping to begin with, which, by the way, goes back to, yes, optimize their eating, optimize their sleeping, and then they don't. And then what do you do? And then they're still stuck with difficulty falling asleep. It's okay to use a little bit of clonidine to help them fall asleep and also the stimulant during the day. And, and that can be really helpful. And just because you're on a medicine now doesn't mean you're gonna be on it forever. You always have the opportunity to come off of medications. You just wanna make sure that you're doing so safely with your provider. For example, the stimulants, you can take it one day and forget it one day. There's no effect on the body. 
However, the non-stimulants, it's different. If you take clonidine or guanfacine every day and then you skip a dose, you actually can, it's a blood pressure medicine. You can pop up your blood pressure and, and they may not feel well. Um, similarly with this Stratera or Atomoxetine, it's an anxiety medicine. And if you miss a day or two, you might have some, some, some withdrawal effects and you might not feel well. And so really just being actively engaged with your, your prescribers is, is important during that journey at the beginning when you're finding the right medication. Right. That's also important to keep into um, mind when you're deciding whether to take it seven days a week or just say during school times or, you know, nine months a year and not. Yeah. I think we have to think about what brought us to the diagnosis in the first place. Right. And if the, di the diagnosis truly is these behaviors affect them, homeschool doesn't matter to me, then, then, then it really would be useful to, to use the medication seven days a week. In most cases, um, for example, if you're a parent and you're really struggling with providing your child that structure on the weekends, um, yes, they don't have homework or school, but do they have things to do? Do they have chores to do? Do they have activities to participate in? If, if the answer is yes, and you find that they've done so well Monday through Friday, and then all of a sudden Saturday and Sunday hit around and you're yelling, they're screaming, you're, you're very oppositional, why would you do that? They did so well. They felt so in control for five days. You felt like your child was doing so well for five days. Why would you take that away from them on Saturday and Sunday when they're supposed to be enjoying their weekend and you're supposed to be enjoying your weekend with them? To me, that's that's counterintuitive. Like I would want seven days of good. And there's no evidence to say that five days versus seven days changes the side effects or changes the long-term outcome. Right, because they used to say, take a drug holiday. Remember that? Yeah. They would say- take the summers off, because one of the concerns was growth, and I do want you to address that. Yeah, so some of the longer-term studies showed that taking stimulants from a young age for many years um, could decrease your height by about, um, I think it was about half an inch, if that, um, not a lot, and so we don't really know, is that the medication, was that the ADHD, but even so, it's about a half an inch, um, and that's about taking it long-term. I don't think there's anything to support that taking it nine months of a year or taking it five days a week is any different in terms of that long-term effect as the whole. I'm wondering also, thank you. I'm wondering also if it has to do with nutrition that, you know, kids on this have their appetite suppressed. I'm wondering if these are kids who didn't have optimal nutrition, what can parents do for that particular side effect? So typically what we recommend is, is healthy fats. So avocado, peanut butter, ice cream, stuff like that, that like you're getting those healthy oils and healthy fats in. Um, sometimes we do say on the weekend, it's okay to take off because you're doing okay. We feel like you're safe and that, that can help with the, the weight issue. Um, and in general, our goal really is to try to optimize the medication without those side effects. And if you feel like appetite is a major issue, then it might be worth considering switching to a different stimulant or a different non-stimulant. Mm. I mean, I've definitely seen this, particularly on some of the really long-term um, stimulants that they're just on it for too long. Like yeah. you have to balance how much you're covered with getting a chance to eat. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so there, I, I have to say though, it is quite, I, I often have parents who are very worried about the weight issue and they really start looking at their kids' um, eating habits once they're on medication, but they need to weigh them. Because I can't tell you nine out of 10 times we weigh them. And I'm like, they actually gained two pounds. <laughs> really? And I'm like, yeah. So like always we want to really be objective about it as best as we can. 
Um, so weigh the child like that morning, they start the medication and then check a month later. Um, because very often I think parents aren't necessarily looking as much as they are once they start taking the medicine. Um, and sometimes it's not as bad as, as we think it is. Right, and when they're not under the effect of the appetite stimulant side effect of the medication, they can eat a big breakfast. They can also be like a hobbit and have second dinner. Yep, so, exactly. <laughs> you know, which is what my patients often do. They just eat later at night and they catch up and they do fine. How do you know what dose is the right dose? And I think you kind of mentioned it before when you said follow the symptoms. Right. So it's all about the individual and the individual brain. So we always start at the lowest possible dose you possibly could imagine. So I have 20 year olds that start on the same as a 10 year old um, and a four year old even. So they start on the lowest possible dose of that formulation. I choose a formulation based on what I think the child can take. If they can swallow a pill, great. We'll start with Concerta, 18 milligrams. That's the lowest. Um, if they can, and mom said, no, I really don't think they're going to do that. I say, okay, we'll get a capsule that we can open the lowest is 10. So whatever the lowest is in that group of medications. Um, and then I say, start it on the weekend. Um, now, because I wanted parents to see what they're like when they're on the medicine. Now everybody's home all the time. Um, <laughs> but in general, I say, start it on the weekend when you're home so we can watch them and see what, what we notice. Um, I typically start with a long acting. I prefer to see it in and out of their system through as much as the day. There are other providers who prefer to do a short acting to see how they do if they respond. Um, the downside to that is that sometimes it's in their system and out and they have to take it a couple times during the day, two, maybe even three times a day. So I prefer the first strategy, um, but there are individuals who, who, who do different. Can so, I ask you, do, you do, do you do the long acting on the youngest children as well, or do you prefer for younger children to start with short acting? I started, and then if there's side effects, I back off and go on the, on the short acting. After. Even on the youngest ones? Yeah, I do. You yeah. have specific ones you prefer. I'm just asking as a pediatrician. I do metadata because it has a little capsule. That's it. Ah, you can sprinkle yeah. it, right? Yeah, because of the capsule. Um, it's easy, it's easiest to take. Uh, so I start with the first line that I know will get, you know, it'll get approved by insurance. We don't have to right. worry about that. Let's just do that. And then we'll work from there if it doesn't work or if there's side effects. Um, so I typically start with that. Um, and then I, I wait a week and I say, let me know in a week how things went. After a week, you'll know if that's the right dose or not. Um, with not with stimulants, you should know in a week if that's the correct dose. You can safely go up every five days. I give it a week because I'm not gonna calculate every five days. Um, so for me, it's every week we decide. Um, and then I provide my uh, work uh, portal um, in terms of communication with myself or someone on my team. And then we work over the, over the first couple months of really kind of finding the right level. Stimulants are a little different in that the goal of treatment is actually to push it as high as you can go. So parents will say, I'm not really sure. And I say, well, I think we should try one more because a lot of times you're not sure if it really is doing what you need it to or not. And so sometimes taking it to one level higher, you can say, okay, yeah, now I notice the difference. If there's side effects, we back off. Um, but typically we push it as far as we can go until we have side effects. So do you ever have it happen where you get to the point where the side effects are not acceptable, but you're not getting enough of an effect? Absolutely. And that's when we say, okay, well, that's not really working out so well. So now we have to decide what did we like or what did we not like, right? Um, for example, the methylphenidate, uh, Concerta or Ritalin works really well, but maybe they had to get to a high dose um, because they grew. Um, and now like the side effects 
it's still working, but not as great. And the side effects are there. Um, there's newer formulations of a lot of these. For example, Focalin is dexmethylphenidate. So I switch you over to that to say, okay, let's start there and see how that goes. Um, or we decide to go over to Adderall to the amphetamine group. I like to give parents options just to be aware. I also like to be honest that I don't know. I, I don't have a crystal ball. Right. If I had a crystal ball, I would be making a lot more money doing something else somewhere else. Um, but what I do, what I do think is important is to recognize that I don't necessarily know the perfect one, but I do have options and we do have decisions that we can make. We'll try this. If that doesn't work, we can go to that. And do you get feedback just from the parents? Typically it's enough as what I need. The child's the most important. If the child can give me feedback, that's wonderful uh, because they can tell me how they feel. Um, I think parents is important. The child is important. And when we do feel like school is, is a big part of the factor, then I do try my best to get the collateral information from school. Mm -hmm. You know, I do find that to be really, really helpful because, um, you know, I've heard it where the parents say, this medication is not working. <laughs> they're not getting the effect at home. Of course it's not working, but they're doing better at school. So, and so then you have to figure out, okay, is it, is it because there's something about the environment at home or is the medicine wearing off by the time they get home? Yes. Sometimes it's a little bit of Sherlock Holmes to figure out what exactly is the issue. So my question is, what do we tell the parents whose children are medicated only when they're in school? Since we know this is a problem at home too, then what? Well, the point is, if you feel like you're getting the medication effect for school, which is great, we all want our kids to be more polite in school than they are at home, if we had to choose. Um, but when they get home, we really do want to provide them support, number one, with homework, but just with their everyday life. And so it's okay to sometimes say, we're going to use that long acting all day in school, but then we do need a couple more hours at home. And sometimes we compare a little tiny bump or a booster of that short acting in the afternoon to kind of help level off the end time, um, which I think can be very helpful. To, to kind of prolong the effects of what we're looking for. Do we have anything for parents who can't get their kids up to begin with to take the medication? <laughs> It's hard. Um, it's definitely hard. I think getting buy-in for the child, depending on their age and their developmental level is really important to recognize. Most parents I deal with um, that I work with are very good about telling their, I very rarely have parents who are like, you know, that vitamin, they, they say you have a difficult time. Even like five-year-olds might be very willing to say, I'm really having a hard time. It's just harder for me to sit still. Do you think this medicine helps you focus? Do you think it helps you sit still? Um, and I think getting buy-in from the child can be really helpful um, in saying, well, this is why we take it. Um, I, very rarely do I have kids who really don't take the pills or swallow things. We do have backup options. There are some patches that you can try. Um, but I, I, I do try to encourage parents to try different options out there um, because it's more than just swallowing a pill. There are other types out there. Um, and we really want the child to kind of be a part of that treatment plan. Right. And also for just the kids who aren't moving fast enough in the morning just to get to the medication, you know, you have to really troubleshoot that and say, oh, are they getting enough sleep? And even if you only want more medication, you may have to use more, which is a good segue to, do you ever use stimulant medications with other types besides ADHD medications? Um, other types of medications. So, so if you have a child who's depressed, Right. Oh, yeah. So as we talked about in the first um, part of this, we talked about the comorbidity. So comorbidity is we have different, we have more than one diagnosis. And very often we have the, what we call the syndrome mix. Very often somebody doesn't just have ADHD. ADHD plus a little anxiety, plus a little insomnia, plus a little bit of tics, a little OCD. And so it's not uncommon to see different things. Anxiety is one of the really high ones. And so 
it's not uncommon to say, well, we've addressed what we think is most intrusive, which is ADHD, but now I think we really need to be addressing some of the other symptoms that are just as intrusive or more so. And so it is safe and it is common to be on more than one medication if you have more than one thing going on. So it's not uncommon for us to say, we're really working on the ADHD and we feel like we've kind of not gotten what we need from that. Maybe the anxiety is playing a really big role and we need to start addressing that with the medicine. It's safe and, and we do use those things together. Who should be doing this prescribing? I'm just asking you because I've heard, you know, different opinions. I think you need to be at a provider who feels comfortable and who feels educated in the, in the topic area. You can have, I have pediatricians that do a great job and feel very comfortable and confident in doing that. There's neurologists. I feel very comfortable. I have some colleagues in my group that feel very comfortable. And then I have other neurologists in my group who maybe don't feel as comfortable because they don't have as much experience in that area of medications. So there are neurologists who do and don't. There are psychiatrists who do and don't. There are pediatricians who do or don't and developmental pediatricians. So there's different types of providers. I think as long as you're with a provider who um, is aware of the, who does this often um, and, and who is comfortable making these changes, that's great. And it's not uncommon sometimes for me to say, um, I feel like I've maximized what I'm able to provide to you. Perhaps a psychiatrist would be helpful in our management plan. And it's okay if your provider says that. Um, you might want that um, for them to say, I think we haven't gotten to what, what we want to do to help your child. And it might be in their best interest to get a second opinion or to get somebody else on the team. Right. And I'm going to add from the parent advocate perspective, um, you know, because I've spoken before about my daughter who, um, you know, is on the autism spectrum. And, I, you know, I've been in the situation as an advocate. I would say as a parent, you know, advocating for your child that if whoever you're going to, I don't care what their specialty is, is not helping get another opinion. Because there are so many medications, you know, I could see you could just keep jumping from medication to medication. And maybe it's the wrong diagnosis. Maybe there's more than one diagnosis. You know, if it's not working, get that second opinion. And, it, and, and I have to tell you, as a provider, I, 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 I have the conversation. I am not offended. I want to make your child feel better. I want you and your family to do well. Um, and so it happens where it's, it's something's not working. Maybe we're hitting a wall. I am very humbled that I do not know how to fix every problem. Um, and it's okay um, as a parent to say, I think we just want a second opinion. And that's, that's fine. You know, we really, we, there's a lot of people out there and we also have to find the right match. And, and so sometimes parents and providers might not be on the right level. They just might not be a good fit and that's okay. Um, don't feel bad about that. Our goal for, for as a parent and as a provider is to take care of the child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I think we covered a lot in these two talks and I ask everybody to listen to both of them. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And I wish everybody the best of luck. Um, and you can do this. And I tell parents, it's okay. You're doing a great job. Please be proud of you being a parent and, and be confident in your skill set because you know your child best and yes. you're the best advocate for yes. them. Um, and, and you need to be that advocate for the provider who wants to help your child, but doesn't know your child. So please work with them. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all this information. So and encouragement. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. 
Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A.org, or email us at health at joma.org.